Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial, a museum and research center dedicated to preserving and presenting the history of General Douglas MacArthur, which includes the story of World War I and that of the millions of men and women who served in that war. The Red Baron Less than two decades before the start of World War I, heavier-than-air flight was not possible. After World War I, war between the great powers was inconceivable without the airplane. Within 20 years, the airplane had established itself as a permanent and essential component of military operations. This is all the more remarkable because it was not until 1910 that most general staff saw the airplane as a viable military option. In the pre-war period, no nation had taken as much interest in aviation as France. In 1909, the French War Ministry ordered a Wright Flyer, and by 1910, France had 30 aircrafts and 52 pilots. Capitalizing on the enthusiasm of the French public for all things related to aviation, the French government was also able to start a public campaign which raised millions to finance the purchase of more planes. German interest in aviation progressed slower, but by 1912, the German government had also started its own public fundraising campaign to boost Germany's air power. Great Britain only formed an Army Air Battalion in 1911. This battalion consisted of five planes. Aware of the progress of other nations in this area, however, in 1912, the British established the Royal Flying Corps, and Parliament began to approve the proper funding to build an air corps. When the war began, planes were predominantly used for reconnaissance. Airplanes tracked troop movements, but the reports of pilots were often ignored by generals on both sides, when the aviators reported the unexpected or something that clashed with preconceived ideas about what the enemy would do. When these reports were believed, though, they gave commanders a bird's-eye view of the battlefield. This kind of reconnaissance probably played a role in saving France in the opening months of the war. Informed of German troop movements around the Ork River via the reports of French aviators, French General Joseph Gallieni used this intelligence to set in motion the eventual Battle of the Marne. 1914 could claim no true fighter plane, however. No ace and no dogfight. But as the year came to an end, a French corporal flying as an observer in a plane fitted with a machine gun fired on a German observation plane. The German plane exploded into flames and plummeted to the ground, making it the first plane to be shot down in aerial combat by a machine gun. The war in the air was quickly evolving. By 1915, there was a swift escalation in the use of airplanes. While reconnaissance remained a role, planes were increasingly better armed, better designed for aerial combat, and more likely to be used in operations. As the stalemate of the trenches continued, many militaries in Europe began to look to the skies. Anything that could break the stalemate was considered. The war that was supposed to be over by Christmas had turned into a frustrating, bloody, muddy mess. More than a million soldiers and civilians were already dead, most lost in the anonymity of mass and mud. But the blue skies over the Western Front seemed untouched by what was going on in the trenches. The potential and the romance of the war in the air often masked its risk. The war in the air was incredibly lethal. The defeated plunged, burning or crippled to the earth. In the air, however, there was also room for individual glory and heroism. And it didn't hurt that these contests in the air could be viewed by many, and that the dashing young pilots made better news copy than the trenches.
Leaders on both sides quickly recognized that these knights of the air could be a distraction from the stalemate. They might even be able to break the stalemate. Through their legendary exploits high above the troglodyte world of the trenches, they would bring back gallantry and chivalry to what was increasingly seen as a war of attrition. And on the backs of their victories, greater victory might be won. The life expectancy of these knights of the air was rather short. While most had the advantage of returning to warm food, beds with clean sheets, and the relative indulgence of their commanders, their survival rates were relatively comparable or worse than those of infantry units during the war. On the Western Front, the average life expectancy of a pilot was between three and six weeks. 77% of French pilots died during the war, and British pilots were informed that one man in 20 would survive the war. German pilots faced no better odds. Despite these odds, or perhaps in spite of them, all of the belligerents produced aces. One of the most famous German aces was Baron Manfred von Richthofen, more commonly known as the Red Baron today. He was born on May 2, 1882, near what was then Breslau, an eastern city in Imperial Germany. Today the area is part of Poland. His father was a major in the Army Reserves, and although a Prussian family, in his autobiography, Richthofen made it clear that with the exception of a general in a prior generation, the Richthofens were not career military officers. Most of his contemporary biographers described him as an individualist, a young man who grew up loving hunting and stalking. He had no real interest in joining the Army or going to a military school as a young boy, but began training as a cadet because his father desired it. He proved an average student, but was an excellent athlete. In 1912, he ended his training and became a lieutenant in the 1st Ulan Regiment named after Russian Emperor Alexander I. The Ulans were light cavalry lancers, who specialized in reconnaissance. Fond of horses and riding, as a proud cavalry officer, Richthofen began to enjoy his army career. He demonstrated early on, though, that he was tough and was in constant need of challenges. In 1913, he entered a cross-country race sponsored by Kaiser Wilhelm II. Shortly after the start of the race, he took a nasty tumble, breaking his collarbone in the process. In a great deal of pain but determined to win, Richthofen remounted and rode for another 45 miles, reaching the end of the race in enough time to win the prize. As a year passed, his life as a cavalry officer fell into a comfortable routine of riding, playing cards, eating oysters, and drinking champagne in the officer's mess. In late July 1914, he and his fellow officers were stationed six miles away from the German-Russian frontier. On August 3, 1914, Germany went to war. Within a night, Richthofen was riding with his regiment into Russia. Without firing a shot, Richthofen's patrol captured a small Russian village. To ensure the cooperation of the villagers, Richthofen arrested the village priest and locked him in the church, with orders to shoot him if there was any resistance. Then he settled in to await further orders. Over the course of a week, his patrol dwindled as men were sent out as couriers. During that time, a group of Cossacks entered the village, surprising the remaining remnants of the first Ulans. Woken in the night, Richthofen and two others made their escape, playing a dangerous game of hide-and-seek with the Cossacks. No one heard anything of them for days. Richthofen's parents were informed that he had been killed fighting Cossacks, but after a week of dodging the enemy and sleeping in his clothes, a bedraggled Richthofen and his two companions returned from the dead, arriving at the headquarters of the first Ulans in Germany. 
Within 24 hours, the regiment was boarding a train for the Western Front. In Belgium, Richthofen would quickly fall prey to his pension for carelessness. Ordered to take a small detachment and make contact with French cavalry in the area, he led his men into an ambush, losing 10 of the 14 men with him. Unhurt except for his pride, he wrote home to his mother that the French had surprised him beautifully. Personally, he vowed to do better and told his mother he intended to win the Iron Cross. As the war progressed, he witnessed the twilight of the cavalrymen. Transferred to Verdun, like many cavalrymen, he said goodbye to horses and became a dispatch runner. He dodged death a couple of times, but was extremely bored at Verdun. In the mud of Verdun, there was no opportunity to be a hunter, no glory to win. Writing to his mother, he explained, We, the first Ulans, unfortunately, have no chance to do anything else in this war unless the plague descends on Verdun. I would so much like to earn the first-class order of the Iron Cross, but there is no possible chance here unless I penetrate Verdun in a French uniform and blow up an armored tower. He would win this cherished Iron Cross for repeated trips to and from the trenches during a heavy period of enemy fire, but it would not be enough. His frustration was clear. A 1927 biography explains that in the trenches, his individualism was lost in the great machine of which he had become a cog. Things reached a breaking point in 1915 when he wrote to the commanding general of his division, My dear Excellency, I have not gone to war in order to collect cheese and eggs, but for another purpose. He then proceeded to apply for a transfer to the flying service. His transfer request was granted, and soon he was off for training as an observer or a pilot, whatever he was qualified for that would take him away from the trenches. By June of 1915, he was flying missions as an observer on the Eastern Front against the Russians. Writing exuberantly to his mother, Richthofen crowed, Now we are again in the full war of movement. Nearly every day I fly over the enemy and report. It gives me great fun. I am so pleased that I can help here, just at the most important sector of the front. Flying in the front seat of a two-seat albatross, Richthofen had a daily view of the Russian retreat along the Eastern Front. Far from the frustrations of a dismounted cavalry officer in the trenches, now he could be part of a victory. Like the troops on the ground, he continued to have close brushes with death. In one of his observation flights, his plane was forced to crash land after the engine stalled. Fortunately for Richthofen and his pilot, they landed in territory that had recently been taken by German troops. German Prince Eitel Friedrich happened to be nearby, and he and his staff, having seen the airplane make a wild dive towards the earth, galloped to the crash site to investigate. Richthofen and the pilot received the congratulations of the prince and their fellow soldiers, and for a while this was enough excitement. Soon, however, the Eastern Front ground into stalemate, too. Sent back to the West, he then began flying bombing missions, dropping bombs over Belgian towns occupied by British soldiers. Soon, however, planes on both sides began to transition from being mainly reconnaissance planes that occasionally dropped bombs on enemy forces. Increasingly, pilots and observers were trading potshots. With aircraft speeding around at speeds in excess of several hundred miles an hour, direct hits were rare, but innovative airmen were figuring out how to make the air war more deadly. Richthofen shot down his first enemy aircraft in 1915. Flying as an observer, he had a machine gun mounted on the side of the observer cockpit. Catching sight of a French two-seater, Richthofen opened fire. 
The French plane also had a machine gun mounted. Both planes exchanged broadsides as if they were ships of the line, with neither pilot considering the maneuvering possibilities of the third dimension. Soon Richthofen tapped his pilot on the head to draw his attention to the French plane, spiraling down to earth. The plane crashed several miles behind French lines, and according to German regulations that prohibited counting planes downed in enemy territory, Richthofen was never credited with the kill. While exuberant over his success, the episode also caused him to reevaluate his military career. He was convinced that the large two-seater planes were too clumsy to allow him to kill as many adversaries as he believed he was capable of killing. He was quickly realizing that a small single-seat aircraft would have an advantage when hunting lumbering two-seaters. In late October 1915, Richthofen took to the air alone for his first solo flight. He flew well enough, but then proved completely incapable of landing, crashing as he came over the runway. His initial failures only spurred him on, making him grimly determined to become a pilot. On Christmas Day 1915, Richthofen was notified that he had passed his examination and was qualified as a pilot. About four months later, on April 26, 1916, while piloting a two-seater with a forward-mounted machine gun, Richthofen shot down a French plane over Verdun. This time, there was no exchange of broadsides. Richthofen had hunted the French plane and used the third dimension to gain an advantageous shot. In 1916, aerial combat was continuing to evolve, progressing from one-on-one -on -one dogfights to squadron versus squadron. In the days that followed his battle over Verdun, Richthofen witnessed the death of one of his close friends and fellow pilots, describing the attackers as a swarm of Frenchmen. Writing to his mother, he bragged of the heroic death of aviators compared to those in the trenches. With a bullet through his head, he fell from an altitude of 9,000 feet. A beautiful death. One cannot imagine him crippled with one arm or leg. Today I'm going to fly at his funeral. Later in the year, he was back on the Eastern Front, but soon he had permission to make some test flights in a single-seat Fokker. In August of 1916, Germany's leading ace, Captain Oskar Bulka, visited Richthofen and asked him to be part of a new fighting squadron he was forming on the Western Front. Richthofen gladly agreed to join and within a few days was on his way to what he referred to as the most wonderful time in my life. The German war effort had stalled at Verdun, and Field Marshal Paul von Hindenburg had decided on a plan to ramp up German aircraft production and shift some 33 new squadrons to the Somme, where a breakthrough was hoped for. Richthofen joined one of these new squadrons, Yasta II, and flew under the command of Bulka. Yasta II was supplied with new state-of-the-art planes, and after some training, the squadron took to the air. On their first mission, each member of the squadron shot down a British plane. An ecstatic Richthofen had a silver cup engraved with the date of this initial success. Through the rest of his career, he followed the same ritual with each confirmed kill, until silver became scarce. From September to October 1916, Yasta II shot down 40 Allied planes. At the end of the month, however, Bulka's plane tipped a friendly plane while trying to dodge an enemy fighter. The wing sheared off and Bulka was sent plunging to his death. Never losing his stride, even with the loss of his mentor, by November 9th, Richthofen had brought down his eighth enemy plane. 
Weeks later, on November 23rd, he encountered a British pilot who proved more difficult to bring down. Circling and circling each other, looking for an advantage, neither pilot could down the other. The British pilot, running low on fuel, eventually decided to abandon the duel. Richthofen followed in hot pursuit, bringing the plane down before it could reach British lines. He had just killed Major Lano Hawker, one of Britain's most celebrated acers, the commander of the number 24 squadron, and a recipient of the Victoria Cross. By January 1917, Richthofen had become Germany's most distinguished living ace when he shot down his 16th enemy plane. Kaiser Wilhelm II awarded him the coveted Pour le Mérite, and he was given command of Yasta 11. The new squadron had an abysmal record, but Richthofen was determined to turn this around. Many of the aces preferred acrobatic flying, but not Richthofen. He was a deadly tactician with a contempt for showy aerobatics, and preferred to fly in tight formation and kill with one straight pass from high up out of the sun. This is something he had inherited from Bulka, and he passed it on to his pilots. There was still a lot of fun at the officer's mess, but there was also a lot of instruction and after-action discussions. Around this time, as Richthofen was becoming one of the great celebrities of the war, he decided to have his plane painted red. He wanted to be recognized by all. The French termed him the Red Devil, and there was a rumor among a British squadron that the pilot of the new red airplane had to be a woman, because only a woman would fly in such a garishly painted machine. Many of his pilots followed his example, personalizing their aircraft with brilliant colors and patterns. April of 1917, also known as Bloody April, gave Richthofen 21 kills for a personal tally of 52 enemy planes shot down. Soon he was given command of a mobile fighter group of 50 aircraft. This larger formation was nicknamed the Richthofen Flying Circus, and it would earn a reputation as a highly efficient, lethal unit. By July, a newly minted Captain Richthofen had a total of 56 confirmed kills, but then his luck nearly ran out. In an encounter with a British plane, Richthofen sat back in amusement while an inexperienced British aviator fired on him well outside the range of his guns. Then, in an ironic twist of fate, a bullet glanced across his head, splintering part of his skull and nearly knocking him unconscious. Fighting for consciousness, he only remembered landing the plane before he woke up in a German hospital. Soon, and against the orders of his doctor, Richthofen was back in the air. He was a different flyer now, though, prone to painful headaches and feeling exhausted for the first time in his life. Over the next two months, he only shot down two enemy aircraft. He was also subjected to several more surgeries as doctors tried to dig bone fragments out of his brain. As his health declined, his optimism about a German victory in the war waned. He wrote, I am in wretched spirits after every battle. When I set foot on the ground again, I go to my quarters and do not want to see anyone or hear anything. He continued to fly and bring down enemy planes, but just as his early flights on the western frontier had shown him the Russian weakness in 1915, now over the western front he could see the same signs of defeat in Germany. By this time, he was flying a Fokker triplane, a plane that would give him the final 16 kills of his career. On April 20, 1918, he shot down two British planes. Eyewitnesses reported that after he landed, he was in the best spirits he had been in for months. That night, his fellow officers toasted his success. 80 kills. He seemed unstoppable. 
The next morning he flew with five other planes from his squadron over the Somme in search of prey. Soon they encountered five British planes. One of the British planes peeled off when the fight began and ricked off and maneuvered into firing position behind the retreating plane. Captain A. Roy Brown of Canada saw the red triplane targeting the retreating plane and raked it with machine gun fire. He later recalled, The pilot turned around and looked back. I saw the glint of his eyes behind the goggles. Then he collapsed into the seat. The red triplane continued its pursuit of the retreating plane for about a mile before it came to a rough landing near trenches manned by Australian troops. Its pilot, Captain Baron Manfred von Richthofen, was dead. He was 11 days short of his 26th birthday. His body was buried with honors by British and Australian forces. It was eventually returned to Germany. Captain Brown was credited with the kill, but it remains a controversial issue even today, hotly disputed between those who support Captain Brown and those who argue that the Australian troops firing on the triplane as it flew towards their lines actually brought it down. World War I was a war of machines against machines, but the daring young pilots who took to the skies imbued the war of machines with an incredible sense of romanticism. Even now, when war has long lost its glory and glamour, men like Richthofen remain icons. They were young, they were photogenic, they were masters of their craft, and most were cut down in their youth. Their most important legacy, however, was that they inspired a future generation of aviators and wartime leaders, ensuring the role of air power in future conflicts to come, as a source of inspiration and hope for a nation, and as a vital offensive or defensive element in any war. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.